Father, thank you for that great promise because of your great son and his great death and resurrection. Help us to believe. Help us to apply that great gospel truth to where we live every day and to confess that you have sent Jesus, your one and only Son, to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, to win for us eternal life. So I pray that would be our mantra. I pray now that your Spirit would work in our hearts. He would open our eyes. He would enlighten our minds that we would see Jesus for who he really is. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team and choir, for leading us this morning in our worship, uh, in our singing. So I would encourage you to open your copies of the scriptures this morning, please, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and if you've been around here for a while, you know that we've been working our way through the gospel of Mark. So Mark is in the New Testament. It's the second book in the New Testament. So if you can find Matthew, the very next book is Mark. And we are now halfway through Mark. And I'm let me just say this as you're turning to Mark chapter 8. Everything in Mark's gospel has been leading up to this point. Listen carefully. This is the watershed moment in Mark's gospel. Everything, everything before this has been leading up to this, preparing us for this. Everything that follows after this will point back to it. This text this morning, verses 27 through 30 of Mark chapter 8, is the turning point, the watershed moment in Mark's gospel. And it all revolves around a single question. Have you ever stopped to consider how powerful the right question can be? Any of you literature fans in here? I mean, like old Shakespearean literature? None. 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 All right, so there, there goes that illustration this morning. So um, let me ask you, have you ever heard of the phrase, et tu brute? That's from Julius Caesar. How about this? Romeo, Romeo. Wherefore art thou Romeo? And of course, that's from Romeo and Juliet. So Shakespeare understood the power of a good question. Advertisers also understand that. For example, if you grew up in the 80s like I did, you'll remember the Wendy's catchphrase, where's the, where's the beef? You'll also remember this mustard-type substance from the 80s. Pardon me, but do you have any gray poupon? And all the young people are like, what in the world are you guys talking about? Okay, young people, here's one for you that's been around just for a couple of years now. It's the Verizon ad which asks the question, can you hear me now? The power of a good question. You know, it isn't just Shakespeare or advertisers that understand the power of a good question. Did you know your kids do too? Did you know that your children 
ask an average of 73 questions per day. And some of you parents right now, I can see you, you're doing the math. You're thinking that with three children, that's 219 questions I answer each and every day. That's 1,500 plus questions every week. No wonder I'm so tired, right? So let me ask this. What's the most important question you've ever been asked? And your first response might be, well, it's when my husband asked me to marry him. I know that's what Joanne is thinking. She's not in here right now, but I know that's what she's thinking. Or maybe you're thinking about a question you've been asked as a parent, or maybe it was a question about your career or your finances or your health. But today's text in Mark chapter 8 is all about a question that's posed by Jesus to his disciples. But listen, it isn't just a question for each of them. It's a question for each of us. Each of us must answer this question. And one day, each of us will answer this question as we stand before the judgment in eternity. It's life's most important question. It's who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? What do you say? What do you believe about Jesus? It's a question that demands an answer because the answer will determine our destiny and our eternity. It doesn't get any bigger than this. So let's read it from, uh, from Mark chapter 8 beginning in verse 22 because verse 22 is, is, a, is a text in which Jesus heals the blind man and it's, it's, a, it's a miracle that's connected to the question Jesus asks. In verses 27 through 30, beginning in verse 22 of Mark chapter 8. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida. And some people, people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of our God. Who is Jesus? We're halfway through Mark's gospel, and that's the question Jesus' disciples are still wrestling with they aren't totally sure about Jesus. They aren't all in with Jesus. They've seen evidence that he's the Messiah. They've seen him heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead. They've heard him teach with the power and wisdom of heaven. But they still have doubts. They still have questions. He's proven his power over the spiritual realm and the physical realm, but he hasn't proven his power over the political realm. 
by freeing the Jews from Roman tyranny, by overthrowing the Caesar and then setting up his rule and reign from Jerusalem over the entire world. That isn't happening. They think that's what's supposed to happen. And now, halfway through Mark's gospel, it's not even close to happening that Jesus is not setting up his rule and reign on earth from Jerusalem's throne. And so the disciples are wondering, is Jesus really the Christ? Is he really the Messiah? Because he isn't meeting our expectations. And you know, that's something we wrestle with too, isn't it? Those same questions. When God doesn't meet our expectations, we're blindsided by a health crisis or, or a marriage fail or a job loss and, and we pray for God to intervene, but nothing seems to be happening. And we're left with lots of questions and honestly very few answers. Just a couple of weeks ago, I told you from this pulpit about guys I went to college with and seminary with guys who once pastored churches like ours and stood behind this pulpit like I am, who have now abandoned the faith altogether. They've quit on Jesus. And the common denominator in their walking away from Jesus is that when tragedy hit, God did not meet their expectations. And listen, friends, that's why we must always be careful to believe in the God who is revealed to us in this book and not to believe in the God we want him to be or think he should be or feel he should be. Our struggle is the disciples' struggle here, and Jesus knows their struggle. Jesus knows their doubts. He knows their questions, and that's why he's going to get alone with them and spend some time with them. He's going to do for them what he's just done for this blind man in Bethsaida. He's going to progressively... Open their eyes to who he is. And that's why Jesus leaves Bethsaida and heads 25 miles straight north to the last outpost in Israel. You can see it on the screen. It's not some, just some useless geographical trivia. Remember, we can learn theology through geography because every move Jesus makes, every step Jesus takes is purposeful including the location here. It's Caesarea Philippi. You'll find it at the top of the screen. And the villages here serve as the ideal backdrop to life's most important question because it isn't just a long way from Jerusalem, notice. It isn't just a long way from Jerusalem. It's that within Israel's borders, you can't get any farther away from Jerusalem. And I don't think that's incidental. I think that's intentional because Jerusalem, remember, is the religious epicenter of Israel. And with all those man-made regulations, the scribes and Pharisees are emphasizing Jerusalem represents religion gone bad. That's what Jesus says just a chapter earlier in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 7, verse 6. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
And so when Jesus asks the disciples the all-important question, he's calling them to make a clean break from the empty, dead religion of the Pharisees and to fully embrace the living relationship with the Son of the living God. And that's going to put these disciples at odds with the Jewish religious leaders and with the rest of the world. Because Jesus is asking his guys to publicly confess him in probably the most godless place in Israel. In fact, the Greeks had originally named this city Panius in honor of the Greek mythological god Pan. Anybody ever heard of a pan flute? A pan flute? In Greek mythology, Pan is a half-man, half-goat who plays a flute. And the story goes that he was born in a cave in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And so it, it, it originally came to be identified by his name. And it's here against the backdrop of pantheistic Greek mythology that Jesus asks his men to confess him as the only son of God and the only way to God, as Jesus will say later on the night of his betrayal and arrest to his disciples in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that means that no one comes to the Father except through me. Against the backdrop of this pantheistic culture in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is asking his men to make the confession that he is the one and only Son of God, the only way to God. Now, the reason I'm making a big deal about the location here is because things aren't very different in our day than they were in Jesus' day. If you confess Jesus as the one and only Lord and Savior and King, it's going to put you at odds with many of the religious and non-religious people in your world. Because you're going to let the Bible determine what you believe about everything. Including the origin of the universe. Including those hot-button moral issues like when human life begins and those gender identity issues and the human sexuality issues, what Jesus says is going to put you at odds with the culture around you. But as these disciples are about to learn, either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And that's what's going down on the way to Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asks the question, who am I? And what strikes me about this scene is how casually it all goes down. It happens, notice here, while Jesus and the disciples are engaging in everyday conversation, while they're on their way from one place to another, 
Suddenly, Jesus just like stops and he pops the question. He says something like, okay, guys, enough of the chit-chat. Big question. What's the word on the street regarding my identity? Who do people say that I am? And I can imagine a collective sigh from the disciples <laughs> saying, I, know, I thought that was going to be a hard question, right? But we, we know what people are saying about Jesus. This one's easy. Notice, Jesus' word on the street is that you are John the Baptist. And that after King Herod beheaded John, John came back from the dead and you are him. I don't know how all that works, Jesus, but that's what people think. That's what they're saying. And then other people think that you're Elijah from the Old Testament since he was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire and he never died. And that you are somehow a reincarnated Elijah. And Jesus, others think that you're just another in the long line of prophets. That you speak the words of God, you've got power from God. So they think you're a good guy who's somehow connected to God because you can do some really amazing things. And that's the word on the street, Jesus, about who you are. Now let me ask you, does that sound familiar? Because if Jesus were to stand behind this pulpit this morning and ask us that same question, what's the word on the street in Schaumburg about who I am? Our answer wouldn't be much different than the disciples' answer. See, the world's opinion of Jesus hasn't changed that much in 2,000 years. People today say that Jesus was a great teacher, a great influencer, a spiritual guru, that he's one of history's great figures. And so nearly a third of the world's population today, nearly two million people, claim to follow him in some form or fashion. And yet, according to a recent Barna poll, America is equally divided 50-50 on whether Jesus lived a sin sinless life. And get this, of those in America who consider themselves to be born-again Christians, 30% say that Jesus probably wasn't sinless. And then, more than 60% of professing born-again Christians between the ages of 18 and 39. So let me just pause right here. If you're here this morning, you're a professing believer in Jesus between the ages of 18 and 39, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay? Because according to the, the latest data and statistics, 60% of you believe that Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad are all equal paths to salvation. 60% of professing born-again believers between the ages of 18 30, and 39. Think that. 
Now, the only way you could believe that is if you agree with the word on the street about Jesus, that he's nothing more than a great guy or a good moral teacher or an inspiring religious leader. But listen, those are not logical options. Because Jesus claimed to be God. John 14, verse 9, he says this. If you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. Jesus claims to be eternal. To not be created. To have always been and will always be. In John 8, verse 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And then get this, Jesus says in John 3, verse 36, that whoever believes on the Son, whoever believes on me, has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life because the wrath of God remains on him. Wow. This is what Jesus says about himself. This is what Jesus says about who he is. Those aren't just declarative statements. Those are outright audacious claims. And that's why C.S. Lewis says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said could not simply be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be a liar from the devil in hell. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus Christ is either lunatic or liar or he is the Lord of all. And that's why Jesus asks his disciples what others think about him. Jesus here isn't secretly interested in his latest polling numbers. He isn't being a bit passive-aggressive here and asking the disciples to pump up his image and his psyche. Jesus' first question, who do people say that I am, is a setup question. With it, Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. This is about for the disciples to get intensely personal because then Jesus turns to them and asks, but who do you say that I am? And I wonder, at this moment, is there kind of a blank look on the disciples' faces as Jesus' words just kind of hang suspended in midair? Do the disciples just do they shoot nervous glances at one another? I mean, this is the big question. This is a one-question exam. And I can just imagine in this moment that two years of memories flood their minds. Memories of that storm back on the Sea of, the Galilee, of, the sea of Galilee and Jesus standing up in the back of the boat and shushing the wind and stilling the waves with those words, Peace, be still. And it was. And they remember that night like it was last night because they asked themselves this same question. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? 
And then their minds go back a little further, back to when Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, to join with the disciples, the band of disciples. And and Matthew invites, you remember, his tax collector friends to the party. He's throwing for Jesus. And the disciples remember that day so vividly because the Pharisees are hanging around outside the party. And everybody who's coming in, they're asking this question, why is Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Who does he think he is? And then the disciples remember all the way back to that day in Capernaum. Back to one of the first first miracles Jesus ever did. When Jesus is teaching in the house there and four guys cut a hole in the roof and they lower their paralyzed friend to the floor right at the feet of Jesus. And then Jesus says to him, son... Your sins are forgiven. And somebody in the crowd says, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is Jesus? Those are the memories that must be racing through their minds right now when suddenly Peter pipes up and blurts out, Jesus, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the promised one. And then Matthew in his gospel tells us that Peter goes on to say, you are the son of the living God. That's who you are, Jesus. And I can imagine the other disciples quickly glancing again at one another and saying, well, well, Peter, now that you mention it, yeah, I was going to say that too. But Peter, you just blurted it out like you always do. But listen, Peter doesn't get it right Because he's quicker or smarter than the other disciples. Matthew tells us that at this point, Jesus turns to Peter and says, This was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father who's in heaven. He's opened your eyes. So Peter gets it right, not because of his Sherlock-like deductive powers, reasoning his way into the truth. He gets it right because God has opened his eyes to the truth in the same way that Jesus has just opened the blind man's eyes in Bethsaida. And what's true for Peter is true for us. God opening our eyes is the only way any of us confess that Jesus Christ isn't just a good guy or a great leader or a gifted teacher. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the Living God. He's the one and only Savior. As the Apostle Paul, excuse me, as the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, verse 14, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so I need to ask you. What Jesus asks his disciples, is he your one and only Savior? Do you stand before this Jesus and say, you are the Christ? Is that your confession? Young people, please listen. Young people, I'm not asking if this is your parents' confession. Husbands, I'm not asking if this is your wife's confession. I'm asking each of us individually and personally this morning, is Jesus Christ the Christ of your life?
I mean, let's be totally transparent this morning. Let's be open and honest. We all know down deep inside that something is terribly wrong with us. We all know we're broken people. Our conscience weighs on us. Sometimes it screams at us, you're guilty, you're sinful, your heart is deceitful. Listen, the words you are the Christ are words of hope and life. You are the Christ says that God would not allow sin to reign or death to win. You are the Christ means that Jesus has come to die for our sins in our place so that death would die and life would be ours forever. You are the Christ means that full and free forgiveness is possible and available to any and all who will call on the name of Jesus in faith. You are the Christ. Is that your confession? Have you made that confession? You say, PK, Pastor Ken, you don't know who I am or what I've done. Okay. I'll give you that. But I do know who Jesus is and what he's done. And whatever it is that you have done, And whoever it is that you are is no match for the death-defeating power of his grace. There is a tomb outside of Jerusalem that once held the body of Jesus that no longer does. And so, your sin is not too much. Your past is not too great. Jesus Grace is greater. Would you trust him? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in verse 13 of that same chapter, here's what we read. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you? Will you come to Christ? Will you confess him as the Christ, your Christ, your Lord? Will you believe and come to Jesus? And then there's one last word that Jesus has for his disciples. Notice here what he says. He says, don't tell anyone, guys, what we've just talked about. Don't say anything about who I really am to anyone. Now, that shocks us. I mean, this is the turning point, the watershed moment in Mark's gospel. This is, we read in the book of Acts, this is the confession that turns the world upside down. So what's up here? Why does Jesus say, shut up here? Well, you've got to come back next week. We'll talk about that next week. Today, I leave you with three ways that this scene radically affects who we are and what we do as believers in Jesus. Which begins with what we do in this very room on Sundays. 
Here it is, number one. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. If this is the central question in Mark's gospel, it's the central question in our life. And it should be the central question in our gatherings. It's a central truth. Jesus is the Christ. It's all about Christ in our church gatherings. We sing about Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. We preach for the glory of Jesus. This is who we are. And we make no apologies for that. Listen, I get that within a 20-mile radius of this facility, you could find 100 churches who will tell you how to have a better marriage or four ways to being single and happy or five steps to becoming a better parent or three keys to loving the job you hate. Now, don't get me wrong. Those aren't bad things. The Bible addresses all of those things. We address those things. But it's just that many churches and many pulpits and many pastors will talk about those things and then just throw Jesus in at the end as an afterthought, a postlude. All of those things are fine things, but those things are not the main thing. Jesus is central. You see, you can have a happy marriage and you can be single and happy and you can have really cool kids and love your job and still miss heaven because you've missed Jesus. I never want anyone to walk out of this room having not heard about Jesus and not thinking that Jesus is central to everything we do and everything we are here. And that's why every Sunday I tell you the same story, the story of Jesus, using different words, saying it in different ways from different Bible texts. It's what Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist pastor, once said to his congregation, I sometimes wonder that you do not get tired of my preaching because I do nothing but hammer away at this one nail. Year after year, week after week, my message is none but Jesus. And so if you're new here and you're wondering what we're all about here, this is what you're going to get here, week in, week out, none but Jesus. And that isn't just what we do here or who we are here. It's what we do and who we are everywhere. And so the second application is that we share Christ with the world. It's not just that we're all about Christ in our gatherings, but we share Christ with the world. God has strategically placed around us people who need to hear this news and it's our privilege to tell them because God has promised in his word that through us telling him, he will do the work of opening their eyes to the truth of who he is. Because this is life and death stuff for everyone. This is heaven and hell stuff. This is eternally significant and important stuff. And one of the ways we're getting the word out about Jesus is through Operation Christmas Child, where we are packing Shoeboxes full of crayons and washcloths and toys that will go to children all over the world at Christmas. And with these shoeboxes, boys and girls and families will hear about this Christ. Our church facility this year is one of the collection points in the northwest suburbs. 
And so we'll have the privilege as a church of putting our hands and our hearts on hundreds of boxes that will go all over the world with the news that Jesus is the Christ. Wow. Think about that. All over the world. The impact our church in Schaumburg, Illinois, can have worldwide through this effort. And so I want to encourage you to play an active role in praying for and packing and serving the Operation Christmas Child effort. It's one of the ways that thirdly, third application, we can be all in with Christ. With an all out, pedal to the metal kind of living because he is the Christ. And so there is no room for half-hearted, going through the motions, no big deal kind of living. See, Jesus isn't just necessary for eternal life. He's relevant and essential for everyday life. You can't listen in or look in on this scene and hear Peter say, you are the Christ, without getting that this is a radically life-changing, purpose-giving, everyday impacting truth that affects everything about me. How I treat my spouse. You are the Christ. How I parent my kids. You are the Christ. How I drive my car. You are the Christ. How I spend my money and my time. You are the Christ. And so may our everyday living echo the words of Philippians 1 verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. And so to die, that's gain. Because Jesus is the Christ. This is the single life-orienting truth. This is the single life-guiding principle. This is what we will swing out into eternity believing. So let's be all in with Christ. All day, every day, by his grace and for his glory forever. Because Jesus is the Christ. Amen. Father, open our eyes, our minds, our hearts, by your spirit to this truth. And may it radically affect the way that we, we think and feel, how we love, how we live. Jesus, your Son is the Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you've never crossed that line in the sand, and going from what the world thinks of Jesus as a good, a good guy, a moral teacher, a spiritual guru, to he is the Christ. He's my Christ. I'm going to ask you right now, would you confess him as your Christ? Would you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? Right now, would you become a follower of Jesus Christ? And then, Christian, is this confession 
really affecting everything about you every day. May God help us by his grace and for his glory. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Jesus' name, amen.